Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, we now draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Lord, we thank you, uh, Jesus, for opening a new and living way into the presence of the holy God. We know that every good and perfect gift, every blessing that we need first is in your hand, and you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And so now we ask that you would open your hand and send forth your Holy Spirit into this place that we would have the opportunity, based on the text of Scripture I'm about to preach, to exalt and to glorify and magnify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're looking at one of the most spectacular miracles that Jesus ever did. I've had the privilege of walking through the Gospel of Mark uh, as an expository preacher at First Baptist Durham, and I'm just finished chapter 13. As I was thinking about preaching to you folks today, I wanted to go back into that uh, journey that I've been on, and I uh, felt led by the Spirit to this particular text. The Apostle Peter gives a marvelous job description for every Christian, but especially for every preacher of the Word of God in 1 Peter 2.9. Uh, he calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The greatest privilege of my life is getting up week after week to do exactly that, to proclaim the infinite glories, the excellencies of Jesus Christ based on the perfect word of God. And no passage so powerfully depicts the rescue of a wretched soul from deep darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel, marvelous light of the glory of God, as does the one we're going to look at now, Mark 5, 1 through 20. Jesus there effortlessly evicts a legion of demons and sets a man eternally free from their darkness. Now, this account is the second of two consecutive very spectacular miracles in the Gospel of Mark, back to back, the stilling of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and then immediately after that, the driving out of a legion of demons. I believe that the stilling of the storm, as recounted there in Mark 4, is Jesus' most visually spectacular miracle. I mean, most of Jesus' healing miracles are not visually spectacular. They're just healings. They're significant incredibly significant for that person, like a man born blind. But it's not visually spectacular. But if you'd been on the boat and you saw that hurricane-level wind and waves and instantly stilled by Jesus' voice, that's visually spectacular. And then the very next thing that happens is the most spiritually spectacular miracle Jesus did, the eviction of an army of demons, the most spectacular exorcism. There is no other exorcism or driving out of demons, uh, no account that even comes close to this one, for the magnitude of power, the power of Jesus that it reveals, uh, the stunning transformation of one man from being what I consider to be the most wretched human being on the surface of the earth ever depicted in the pages of Scripture. I don't think there's anyone that comes close to being someone sitting in his right mind, clothed and yearning to follow Jesus for the rest of his life. It's a radical transformation. And then, of course, the 2,000 pigs rushing down a steep bank and drowning in the lake, also spectacular. So oftentimes, a preacher, as he begins a sermon, has to do some kind of homiletical or preaching trick to get uh, his people interested. 
Friends, if you're not interested, something's wrong with you. So my job is to just get out of the way of the text and just let it do its work. And what is that work? What is the work that Mark is about in his gospel? Well, from the very beginning in Mark 1 and verse 1, he declares his purpose. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so his desire is to present the credentials of Jesus as the Son of God, his character, his works, his words. And it's consummated at the end when, as Jesus is dead on the cross, the centurion standing there at the foot of the cross says, truly, this man was the Son of God. So that phrase, Son of God, is a, a bracket of the entire gospel and it seems to be the purpose, Mark's purpose. I believe that the purpose for all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are summarized at the end of the Gospel of John in which the Apostle John says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing may have life in his name. That's the same purpose for all four Gospels. That's why the Holy Spirit gave them to us. And so Mark's Gospel is part of that work. Uh, the Gospel writers give us reasons to believe. Why should we confess our faith in Jesus as the Son of God. And so these accounts do that. And they show us the effortless power that Jesus had, power that only Almighty God could have, effortless power over raging storm, uh, speaking it completely peaceful, peace be still, and instantly the wind and the waves are stilled. And then again, effortless power over a demon-possessed maniac, so that maybe as many as 6,000 demons that inhabited this man in the end, instantly leave that man or evicted by, in Matthew's account, a single word, go. And they made, uh, instantly obey him. Now, sadly, in the account, we also get the reaction of the people of that region. And they do not want Jesus there. They're more afraid of Jesus than they seem to have been of the demon-possessed man. They want him gone. And so all four gospel writers, while giving us the credentials of Jesus, also give the mixed reaction of Jesus that we're gonna see again and again. Some people believe, most people don't. And so it's very honest, the gospel is very honest about that and it calls on us to not be among those that do not believe, but among those that believe. Now the account begins with a demon-possessed maniac who's terrorizing a region. Let's talk about the context. Jesus and his disciples had left the huge crowds uh, that he'd been ministering to, to get away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps the disciples thought it was a time of restful retreat. Um, little did they know when they got in the boat what was about to face them, what I've just already described. A hurricane-level storm on the sea in which they are convinced that they're going to drown. And then this encounter with this demon-possessed maniac of terrifying power. So look at verse 1 and 2 in Mark 5. They went across the sea to the region of the Gerasenes, sometimes called Gadarenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. So this demon-possessed maniac is described. Uh, verse 2 calls him a man with an unclean spirit, a demon. Now, demons are angels that rebelled along with Satan and were evicted from heaven. They are called unclean because all of their thoughts and actions and their entire program is evil all the time. It's said of God, in him is light and, and there's no, in him there's no darkness at all. But the demons are exactly the opposite. There's nothing but 
darkness in them, no light at all. So they're, they're unclean. So the encounter uh, begins with Jesus and his disciples getting out of the boat. The demon-possessed man sees them from a distance and comes from the tombs where he's been living to the shoreline. Now, this man is an absolute monster. His human personality has been swallowed alive by the demons inside of him. Look at verses 3 through 5. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones." So the text says that he lived in the tombs. Now, no one in their right mind would ever do this, uh, to be surrounded by dead people all the time. The tombs were often caves blocked up with large stones. At best, they would offer rudimentary protection from the elements. They're cold, they're dark, they're hard. Uh, He's absolutely severed from all human society. He has a family, as we'll learn at the end of the account, Uh, But his condition has cut him off from all interactions with them and indeed with everyone else. Uh, It says no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So that statement gives a a sense of the history of this man. We're actually looking back in time a little bit through that statement. Uh, He had originally or perhaps even many times been bound with chains and even shackles. You could picture large flat pieces of iron pounded by a blacksmith and then curved around into the shape of ankles or wrists, manacles to, be, to bind a powerful prisoner and, and then links of, of, a, of a thick links of a chain to hold somebody very strong and powerful. But this man had broken every chain put on him, shattered every shackle. So the demons are giving this man supernatural, inhuman power. Verse 4, he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons in his feet. And the text says no one could bind him anymore, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Now, the word subdue, the Greek word, is used of taming a wild beast, to tame a wild beast. So it implies many efforts have been made to take this man down. You could picture four or five very powerful, strong, big men uh, wrestling with this guy. Uh, each one grabbing an arm or a leg, someone trying to hold his head down, maybe at some time clonking him in the head to render him unconscious, and then putting the, the shackles on his hands and his feet, and, and like putting the chains down with, with iron stakes, something like that, to bind him like an animal. But when the man would come to, he would rip it all apart. And, and I'm certain that the men that had been trying to subdue him would just run for their lives at this point. It's terrifying. And finally, the people in that region just knew that this man, this monster, lived there, and they probably just stayed away from it entirely. There's nothing they could do. They, everyone, everyone there lived in terror of him. And his lifestyle is described in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all have accounts of this man. Luke says that he had, for a long time, gone without clothing. So he's stark naked, uh, with no shame. He's like an animal. He's living like an animal. And, and furthermore, he rarely slept uh, in, in verse 5 of our account, it says, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So he's into self-harm. He was cutting on himself. So he's roaming restlessly like demons do. He's looking for rest, but finding none. Uh, he goes about from tomb to tomb, from hill to hill, night and day, day after day, night after night, 
crying out as if for help, for deliverance. But who could ever set this poor man free? As I've said, I believe this man is the most wretched human being described on the surface of the earth. Obviously, it's far worse to be in hell. The rich man in Jesus' parable is worse. But this man is truly wretched. Secondly, we see the Son of God coming in and terrorizing the demons. So while we have this wretched man terrorizing the region, we now have Jesus come and the demons are clearly terrorized by him. So the encounter with Jesus is initiated. The demon-possessed man sees uh, people landing from a distance and comes to the shoreline. And and what he does is simply astonishing. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. So instead of running away from Jesus, the demons ran to him. Why is this? Because the demons want a time with Jesus? Not at all. They are pure darkness, and they are not going to come into the light. They don't want to be anywhere near Jesus. So then why do they run to him instead of running away from him? Furthermore, they make the man that they're inhabiting fall on his knees before Jesus a clear sign of submission, even a sign of worship. They know exactly who Jesus is, as you see from their statement. Look at verse 7. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Well, this is my theory. The demons want nothing to do with Jesus, but they know his infinite and his effortless power over them, and that his power extends to every corner of the universe. There is no escape from Jesus' kingly rule. I think about what it says in Amos 9, verse 1 through 3, not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. There is nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide, and they know it. In Mark 7, Jesus will drive out the demon from the Syrophoenician woman's daughter without even going to the home, without saying anything to the demon, without laying hands on the girl, without even giving any indication at all of anything. He just tells the Syrophoenician woman, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Just like that. How did it happen? He just thought it. And it was done. That's the power, the effortless power of Jesus. And they know it. They know the power of Jesus over Jesus. So they run toward him and they fall on their knees before him and they begin a negotiation with him. And they do it by screaming a request. Verse 7, he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, son, Jesus, son of the most high God? They're completely unruly. They frequently make their human host scream or shriek or foam at the mouth. And this one's shouting at the top of his voice. It's clear that they are utterly terrified of Jesus. Well, why? Why are they terrified of Jesus? The demons say in verse 7, what is there between you and me? What business do we have? In other words, what are you doing here? What are we going to, what, what do we have in common? What business are we going to do? And they call him son of the most high God. The central reason for the terror 
is the power of Almighty God and of his perfect and holy son, Jesus. The demons have very accurate, precise theology. They know the the truth better than we do. James tells us in James 2.19, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So they hate the truth they know, but they know the truth. Furthermore, the demons know their future. It says in Matthew 25, 41, uh, uh, Jesus speaks of the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The lake of fire, as revealed in the book of Revelation, is their future. It's not their present, but it is their punishment. It's their future at the end of the age. Also, Revelation 12, 12 says the devil is filled with rage because he knows that his time is short. But Jesus' invasion into their domain is unprecedented. Uh, The demons have had their run of the world. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, we're told. They've run the place. The, The powers and principalities, they've run the place. And now here's the holy son of God, the incarnate son of God, invading their dark kingdom and driving out demons. And so they want to know what's going on. And they want to know specifically about timing. In Matthew's account, Matthew 8, 29, it says, what do you want with a son of God, they shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Seems like you're here out of schedule or ahead of schedule. Furthermore, they're well aware that there is a pit of torture or a, su- a subordinate or penultimate penalty that he could easily throw them into, short of the lake of fire, not the lake of fire, but something else. It says in Luke eight thirty one, they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss, which is just the, the Greek word brought over into English, it means bottomless, the bottomless place, the pit. So that's Luke 8, 31. And so uh, also Matthew 8, 8, 29, which I just quoted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And then our verse in verse 7, swear to God that you won't torture me, implies not just a pit, but a pit of torture for them. It implies demonic agony, and they are clearly terrified of it. Peter speaks of this, I believe, in 2 Peter 2, 4, uh, a place, a temporary place of restraint and torture for demons. He says in 2 Peter 2, 4, God didn't spare angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus, it's a Greek word for a pit, and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. So that's not the lake of fire. That's not their final punishment. It's just a holding place, which is Peter's point, a holding place where they will be punished until the end. These demons are terrified that Jesus could do that. They are very aware that Jesus can instantly do this to them at any moment. And so this speaks to his overwhelming power over all demons. They're also afraid, it seems, of losing their uh, jurisdiction, their territory. They've got an assigned area that they're working, and they don't want to be driven out of it. Look at verse 10. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So they want to stay right there in that area doing their dark works. 
And so they beg him earnestly, or they're pleading with Jesus again and again. So this demon-possessed man is the greatest nightmare of that region, but Jesus is the greatest nightmare of these demons. Let me just stop and say, do you not realize the power of that concept? We're surrounded by spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms, and we have every right to be afraid of them. They are vastly more powerful than we are. But these demons are terrified of Jesus. What does that tell you? Doesn't that give you confidence when you go out on mission for the Lord to know that as we're driving back the forces of evil and we're seeing light conquer darkness, we know that in this account the infinitely great, greater power Jesus has over all demons. All right, so then the Son of God drives out the legion. Jesus commands him to leave, and, uh, and the demons will leave soon. Verse 8, the demon, Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. But then in verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now, the demons have no desire to reveal anything about themselves to anyone. They want to do their work in secret. They don't want this conversation with Jesus either. But Jesus gives them no choice. They must answer his questions and obey all his commands, and they do. And he demands their name. Now, there's two named angels in the Bible, Michael and Gabriel. So angels have names, so demons also have have names. We just know what they are. But here they take a human concept, military concept, and assign it to themselves, legion. So that was a division of the Roman army that had conquered the world. Uh, So it would be about the size of a brigade in modern parlance, uh, military parlance, about five to 6,000 soldiers was in a Roman legion. So we're talking about huge numbers of demons. It's terrifying, really. It's almost like you could look down this hole into this man's soul and see 5,000 black cockroaches running around inside his being. It's just disgusting. And so it also shows that multiple demons can inhabit or demonize a single person which Jesus openly taughts, taught when he says the evil spirit goes out, comes back and brings seven other spirits and they go in and live there. And so multiple demons can inhabit one pers- uh, person. It shows something also, the demons' personality and mind, excuse me, though the demons might ordinarily have been boastful about their cumulative might, they would never have dreamed about boasting in front of Jesus. <clears throat> Sorry. Picture the power of Jesus here. Now, I like movies. I like watching movies. I like watching military movies. And back in 1960, there's a classic called Spartacus about a, uh, a slave up- uprising or revolt during the Roman, uh, Roman Empire. And so uh, the climactic scene is a battle between the, the up to that point uh, victorious slave army and several Roman legions that are there to crush that rebellion. It's a very dramatic scene. And uh, you get the entire battlefield, and you get this terrifying machine-like feel of the Roman legions as they array themselves from marching to battle formation, and it just unfolds slowly like this, this crushing machine described in Daniel 7 as a beast that crushes all opposition. There's no, there's no defeating this. And the slaves are standing there with pitchforks and some, some swords and some other things, but they, they know they're defeated. There's no chance. Well, picture that legion, all right, and one individual, one hero going out alone across the battlefield, standing there and speaking one word, and they all drop their weapons and flee. That's the picture I get of Jesus and these demons here. That's the picture of sovereignty of the infinite majesty 
of Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is seated far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And that's the power I I, I get. So the demonic request, verse 11 and 12, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. By the way, this clearly shows us a Gentile-dominated region. No no Jews would have been raising pigs. Uh, And the demons continue their bargaining with Jesus. They're groveling, they're begging, they're pleading, etc. And so Mark says he gave them permission. Now, I've got here a red-letter edition of the Bible. Some of you have those. That's where all of Jesus' words are in red. I think those are kind of fun. Uh, I don't like the implication that the red letters are more important than the black letters. Jesus would never agree to that. But in the Matthew account, there's only one red-letter word in this whole uh, account. Just one. One word. It's a single word. Two letters. Go. And they go. I think it's so powerful. These two little red letters. Go. And they go. A single word and they go. It reminds me of Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress. Mighty fortress our God, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. What's the next one? One little word shall fell him. It's powerful. So Jesus gives that one little word, go, and they go. That's the supreme power of Jesus Christ. He drew out the name Legion beforehand so we could see the magnitude of the demonic army he defeated all by himself with that little word. What happened next also displays the awesome power of this exorcism. Look at verse 13. The evil spirits came out, went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned. So this is to show physically, visibly, the scope of Jesus' power and their defeat at the hands of Jesus. It also makes visible in the physical realm the truth that we get in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so the destruction of the herd of pigs is a demonic work. And you see that death and destruction that the demons... And then you've got this man brought into his right mind, and we will see, brought to a saving faith in Christ beautiful depiction of John 10, 10 here with the, with the, uh, the pigs. By the way, don't have too much sympathy for the pig owners here. I think they spent the next week fishing pig meat out of the sea and selling it. So I think it probably hurt the market value of, of pork, but I think they got most of their money back. I think it would be quite a, quite a thing to go out in boats instead of fishing for fish, you're fishing for pig. But at any rate, that's what happened. Now, you may ask the question, why give permission to the demons? Why not send them into the pit? That's a very good question, but it's just a larger question of God's purpose of evil in the universe. Why does he allow Satan to roam on earth? Why does he allow demons to do the things that he allows them to do? God has power at every moment. And I think the answer partially is given in the book of Job with Satan's complaint about the hedge of protection, right, that he put around Job. And I I look on it more like a maze, like the Pentagon of walls and doors and all that. And the demons are running through the halls and gates go down and they can't get through there. And then another door opens on the side and they rush in there and then it closes behind them and all that. And in this way, God is orchestrating, controlling every day of human history. 
and the demons are doing their evil works for their evil, evil purposes, but God's controlling the whole thing. And we're going to find out in heaven how sovereign that control was and how wise it was. But no, he didn't send them into the pit that day. He gave them freedom to continue to do their evil, evil things. Now, the account ends with two opposite human responses. Uh, the report, report spread through the Gadarenes, but the people rejected Jesus. Look at verses 14 through 17. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. This is tragic. Instead of falling on their faces before Jesus in wonder and worship, they wanted him out. I suppose it's the same terror that always comes upon people when they see the supernatural power connected with Jesus, but they don't understand his saving nature, his tender mercy and compassion, so they're just afraid of him. Well, meanwhile, we've got the man, and there he is, sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and Jesus recruits him for the gospel. Look at verses 18 through 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So this is by contrast with his neighbors. This is a man who is deeply transformed. Uh, I believe in general it's good to see salvation as a work of therapy, of healing. And so he's dressed in his right mind like Nebuchadnezzar. Used to have the mind of a beast, now he has the mind of a man. And he's, he's got a, a heart and mind to be able to worship and praise the Most High God. And he worships and praises Jesus, and he wants to be with him the rest of his life. Doesn't that melt your heart? I just want to be with you. I never want to leave you. And Jesus wants that. He wants to actually spend eternity with that man, but he has a mission for him to do first. And so he says, don't stay with me here physically going from place to place. Go home to your family. Now, these people were the first ones that must have seen his malady, the first ones that must have seen his insanity. And imagine their surprise when he showed up one day, but he was in his right mind. And to be able to begin to explain to his family what Jesus had done. And not only that, but throughout the entire region, we're told of the Decapolis, the ten cities, the Gentile region, he begins spreading the word about Jesus. So much so that later in Mark's gospel, and Jesus comes back to that area, a huge crowd of people are waiting for him there so that he would heal their sick. And so Jesus sends this man on mission. We also see right in the, uh, the account how important it is to combine the theology of the gospel with your own personal testimony, what Jesus has done in your life. Tell, him how the, tell them how the Lord has had mercy to you, how you were once blind, but now you can see, how you were a wretch saved by sovereign grace. And so that's the beauty of it. This is, this is the mission that God sends us on. So lessons and applications, first of all, the destructive and awesome power of demons. When Jesus ascended to heaven, and sat at the right hand of God, the demons didn't go out of business. 
they are still wreaking havoc on planet Earth. We need to be aware from the gospel writers of these beings, these unclean spirits. I wonder how many homicidal maniacs are incarcerated right now that demons are directly to blame. But in our materialistic, scientific way, we look at psychology and socioeconomic backgrounds and insanities and things like that. And, but we Christians know there is a spiritual dimension to life. And so we learn about demons. But we also see, more importantly, Jesus' effortless power over them. Don't you love that word, effortless? All of Jesus' healings were effortless. There was no sweat. There's no striving. There's no difficulty. It was just effortless for him to do that. For me, very convicting, however, is isn't it convicting for all of us to realize how the hurricane-level wind and waves instantly obey Jesus' word, and the legion of demons instantly obey Jesus' word, and we sometimes obey Jesus' word. I find that convicting. And so God is doing a work in us to bring us around to a full comprehensive obedience that we will live in for all eternity in heaven. The more that we can be faithful to do the work that God called us to do, the more glory he will get. Everywhere on this campus, I see this two-letter word. The same two-letter word is in Matthew's account, go, go. The question I'm going to ask you is, go and do what? Well, at the very beginning, I told you the greatest glory of my life is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called me out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what you're going to go and do, whether it's a pastor church planter, missionary, you're going to go and do that. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the majesty of Christ as seen in this beautiful text. We thank you for the truths that flow out of the Gospels, that give us a sense of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God and that we can have life in his name. I thank you for Southeastern. I thank you for the ministry here. And I pray that you would enable these that are getting ready and being prepared to do great works in the future, that they would make proclaiming the excellencies, the supremacy of Christ, the centerpiece of everything they do. In Jesus' name, amen.